Well, this morning, in light of Christmas, we're continuing to study types or shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. And this morning, we'll be looking at the story of Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ, and part of his story is found in Genesis 30. That's where it begins, and then it picks up in Genesis 37 later. But before we look at the text, let's remember what a type is. What is a type? Well, a type is a symbolic pattern that can be seen in God's actions in time, in creation, uh, in redemptive history that repeat themselves and have a meaning. And so types exist not just because of God's verbal revelation, but because of something He's doing in His providence, because He's sovereign, and He's causing the same thing to happen again and again throughout the Bible, culminating in some reality that is the substance of the shadow. And here we're looking at types of Christ. Now, there's a wrong way to do typology, and there's a right way to do it. The wrong way is to come to the Bible with some theological point to prove, and then find some pattern of it in the Bible, and then prove your point that you had when you came to the Bible in the first place. That's wrong. That's called eisegesis, or reading into the Bible. But valid typology uses the plain reading of the Bible, a plain reading of Scripture, to see patterns that are there. Particularly, it's seeing the clarity, the the clear teaching of the New Testament patterned in the Old. Another way of putting this is that the events of the New Testament can be seen in shadowy form in the old. Or as Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Or we might say later revelation makes explicit what is only implicit in earlier revelation. But how do we know we should use typology when we read the Old Testament? Well, here it's very simple. It's because Jesus uses it and because the apostles use it. We see that's how the the, the Scripture treats itself, that Christ and the apostles always quote the Old Testament typologically. Test me on that. They never just do simple grammatical historical exegesis. Every time they quote the Old Testament, they're showing its connection typologically to Jesus rooted in the historical meaning of the words. To give you just one example, Hosea 11.1 says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. What's that literally mean if you go to Hosea? It means that God delivered Israel from Egypt. That's all the original author, human author, would have thought it meant, and that's all the original audience would have thought. Out of Egypt I have called my son. But the Holy Spirit called Israel out of Egypt because he was going to raise Jesus from the dead, going to bring Jesus himself out of Egypt because he was going to save us from our sins. Matthew 2.15 says of Christ, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. So I would submit that in terms of interpreting the Bible, we have two choices. One, we can either say that Christ and his apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, violated good interpretive principles. They did what we're not allowed to do, but they could do it because the Spirit inspired them to do it, which seems quite wrong. Or we can say that Christ and the apostles are teaching us how to interpret the Scriptures in light of Christ's coming. 
that they're recognizing patterns and teaching us to see them as fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, let me give you a definition of typology. This is from Jim Hamilton. He says, typology is God-ordained, author-intended, historical correspondence and escalation in significance between people, events, and institutions across the Bible's redemptive historical story. In other words, patterns that keep repeating themselves in history and that God is explaining it as it goes along. And so with that introduction, uh, let's look at the story of Joseph. That's a very long story. It has 13 chapters, <laughs> more actually than 13 chapters in the Old Testament. It takes up a huge portion of Genesis, so we can't cover every word of it. But what I want to do is summarize, and we'll drop down in parts and read different parts of it. But before we do, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is a unity, that you you are the one who spoke every word that is written here in these pages, that the Spirit has guided all of history and the revelation through the prophets and the apostles uh, to point to Jesus and that you are, in fact, telling one grand story. Lord, help us to be swallowed into it this morning, to see more of Christ and to believe him and love him and that we would worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be looking at Joseph's story in three ways. First, we'll see the literal, or the we could, literal is probably not the right way of putting it, plain, surface-level meaning of the text. Second, the typology of, of the story. Third, and very briefly, application. So we'll do some application all the way through, but at the, at the end, we'll look at a particular application. But first, let's just remember the plain meaning of the Joseph story. We first read about it in Genesis 30. And his story begins with a miraculous birth. Did you remember that? It's a miraculous birth, just like Isaac and Jacob. Isaac's birth, which we saw last time, was completely miraculous. It was impossible for Isaac to be born because his parents were not able to uh, to have him at that age. Jacob's birth was also divine. Do you remember that? It was divine. So Rebecca was barren, unable to bear children. God caused her to have a child. This is a miraculous birth. Joseph's birth was the same. Miraculous, divine. Rachel was barren, but God opened her womb and she gave birth to Joseph. So don't, don't miss this. After Abraham... All the patriarchs of Genesis were miraculously born. That's significant. It's not an accident. What's happening? God is keeping his promise. He is not going to let Abraham think Abraham kept it. He's not going to let uh, Jacob think that he kept it or anyone Rather, God is keeping his promise by producing these offspring. In a sense, the fact that all the patriarchs had miraculous births is the reason for Christmas. That's why we have Christmas. Christ's birth was more miraculous than any other. Jesus alone was born of a virgin. And his birth alone was the birth of the very eternal Son of God. 
but the patriarchs are all shadows of Christ's birth and are the line in which the Christ came. So please look with me at Genesis 30, verse 22, which is the record of Joseph's birth. And it says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and opened her womb, because she was unable to bear children. It was a very great source of sorrow to her. And then verse 23, And she conceived and bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So God caused him to be born. That's really important in terms of the original promise. Do you remember what God promised? If you go back to Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, flip back there with me, if you will, Genesis 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred. Go from your kindred. And your father's house, leave, to the land that I will show you, and, ready, look at the subject, I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you a great nation. Probably people often think the nation of Israel was just natural generation. It wasn't. It wasn't just through natural propagation. The nation of Israel was supernaturally created by immediate action of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Why? Because I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then this is significant. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, both in the near and far context, which we'll see. So God is saying he personally will make Abraham a great nation. Abraham wasn't going to do it. That explains Joseph's birth. But now let's flip forward to Genesis 37 and look at the Joseph story. This is where the story begins in earnest. And Joseph is 17 years old. So imagine a very strong, healthy, and the text says later handsome, 17-year-old young man. And this tells us two things, the text we're about to read. First, that Jacob favors Joseph over all the rest of his children because Jacob favored Joseph's mother. Now, this is wrong, isn't it? Parents should never favor one child over the others. They should love all their children. So Jacob was in sin and actually incited jealousy among his children and fighting and actually murder because of favoritism. It's wrong. But second, Joseph dreams dreams. And what does he dream? He will be the ruler of his brothers, and his brothers will bow down to him. That's what the text says. So let's remember this by reading Genesis 37, verses 2 through 8. It says, these are the generations of Jacob, which is a sign that there's a new story in Genesis. You see that all through Genesis. These are the generations. These are the generations. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. They said, well, that was bad, but was it? 
Like, you see later what they were like? Perhaps a bad report was proper at this point. So I don't think we should judge Joseph negatively for bringing a bad report of his brothers to their father. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now that could mean, it also, the, the Hebrew is like long. So it's a long, it could mean long robe or robe of many colors, but probably is a double, double, has a double reference. So he has a long robe, it's multicolored. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Do you know that's what we do when we hate people? We don't speak peacefully to them. It's where it shows up first. We hate someone, we don't speak to them peacefully. And that's what they did to Joseph. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves were gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he has another dream. We won't read it, but it tells the same thing about stars bowing down. Now, many interpreters think Joseph did something wrong here. Maybe you've heard that. Joseph was bragging. Shouldn't have told his dream to his brothers. But Joseph was an interpreter of dreams. He was a prophet of God, actually. Who gave him this dream? Joseph. I mean, God. God gave Joseph the dream. Now, maybe you could argue it was unwise to reveal it. I wouldn't quarrel with that. Joseph was unwise to talk about this dream with his brothers. But look what he does the rest of his life. He's revealing hard truths in dreams to people through the rest of his life. <laughs> you know, he, he, he tells the cupbearer, you're going to live, but the baker's going to die. Tells Pharaoh, seven hard years of famine preceded by seven good years of bounty. So Joseph tells the truth through dreams throughout his life. And what's he to do? Have a dream from God and say nothing? Maybe. But it's not clear to me that Joseph is to be implicated here for something doing something wrong. He just tells his dream, which is what Joseph does. Then later in chapter 37, Joseph's father sends him to check on his brothers, who apparently have already been shown to have a bad report and need checking on. So he sends him. When his brothers see Joseph coming, what do they do? They see him coming. They plot. They begin to scheme among themselves to murder him. You can see that in verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Well, only one brother, the oldest, opposed this and said, well, let's not kill him. Let's spare his life and throw him in a pit instead. And then verse 23 picks up the story and says, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. and There was no water in it, a waterless pit. It comes up again and again in the Bible, actually, waterless pits. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. Wouldn't you love that? 
What'd they do? They just threw their brother in a pit, hatefully. They sat down to eat like there was nothing. It's okay. We'll just keep eating our food. They have hardened consciences is what this is showing. They feel no conviction for their sin. So they sat down to eat. And then it says, And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. These are traders coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. So this time Judah speaks up and they they listen to Judah. Now, slaves were very valuable, especially a young man of this age, young, strong, and he would have, you know, given them, you know, money, a good price, and he would have been in demand in other places. And so they sell him, and the traders take Joseph to Egypt where he goes into the house of Potiphar. Now, while in Potiphar's house, Joseph is so wise and capable that Potiphar makes him the manager of his whole house and trusts him with everything. In fact, it says he doesn't need to even look after his own house anymore. He just trusts him. And Joseph never betrays this trust, not even a little. You can see it in Genesis 39, verses 4 to 6. So Joseph found favor in his, that is Potiphar's, sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Now, I want you to notice something here. This is not that Joseph worked so hard that hard work produces good benefits. Sometimes, often, we can expect. That is not what's happening, though. Joseph is wise, and Joseph does work hard, but look what it says. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Who's doing it? God is doing it. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in a house, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no great concern about anything but the food he ate. So he wasn't worried about anything except eating. <laughs> now, after Joseph's rise to success, you know the story, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. Even says he's handsome. She sees this, and she tries to seduce him, but it doesn't work because Joseph is a righteous man. He refuses to be seduced, but she keeps trying. This is not a one event if you look at the text. It keeps happening over and over, and then she finally seizes Joseph by the coat, but Joseph wisely runs away, leaving his coat in her hand, and she is furious. She's angry with Joseph and accuses him of forcing himself on her and her husband And Potiphar foolishly believes her, becomes furious, and has Joseph arrested and thrown into prison. So that's the story of Joseph's rise and then fall in Potiphar's house. But in prison, what happens? He goes to prison. And again, Joseph shows himself to be very wise and trustworthy and hardworking. And the prison guard puts Joseph in charge 
of the whole prison and trusts him with everything. <laughs> and you can see this in Genesis 39, if you look forward to that. Genesis 39, verse 21. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Here again, God is the one doing it. This is God's sovereign grace. It's his purpose to do this. Now, while Joseph's in prison, he meets two people, remember? Two people, two uh, att attendants of the king's court, a cupbearer and a baker, offend the king somehow, offend Pharaoh. They do something wrong. They're cast into prison because of this. And they both have dreams. Genesis 40, verse 5 says, And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each one with its own interpretation. They each dreamed different dreams, and Joseph interpreted both of them. And the dreams are, were this. The cupbearer would be forgiven by Pharaoh and would be allowed to go back and serve in Pharaoh's court. And then after interpreting this dream, Joseph says, I only ask that you remember me when you go back before Pharaoh. But the baker's dream means that he won't be forgiven, but instead that he'll be hung and that the birds will eat, eat his flesh, that he will die. And so everything happened just as Joseph said, and then later Pharaoh himself has a dream. And Pharaoh wants to know what this dream means, and so what does he do? He asks the magicians of the court. Does that remind you of anyone? Is this the same thing happening again in the Bible in Daniel? In fact, there's all kinds of repetition between the patterns of Joseph and Daniel. And so the Pharaoh asks the magicians, but the magicians can't tell him. But the cupbearer remembers Daniel, or sorry, Joseph, that he can interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh calls Joseph up from prison, and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And here's what the dreams mean, as you know. There will be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph is very wise, and Joseph tells Pharaoh, he says, you need to set up a manager in Egypt to store up grain for seven years so that you'll have grain when you need it in the seven years of famine. And you can see what happens then in Genesis 41, beginning in verse 37. It says, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning as wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne, I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. 
And so Joseph stores up grain during the seven years of plenty. Then the famine comes. And then in Genesis 42, the narrative shifts back to Joseph's family. Verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? So here, the, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's a famine. And the sons are wondering what to do, and they're talking to each other. And Jacob hears of grain for sale. And is like, well, why are you wondering what to do? Obviously, go get some grain out of Egypt, right? So that's verse 2. And he said, behold, I have heard there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that you may live and not die. So what happens? Joseph's brothers go down to Egypt. Now, the next eight chapters are very involved, and they have lots of twists and turns. I just want to summarize it briefly. Joseph provides bread for all of Egypt and for his family, but that is not all Joseph does. He forgives his brothers, and he tests his brothers to see whether or not they have changed. A lot of what's going on in these chapters is testing. Have their hearts changed? Have they learned their lesson over the years? And what he actually does is he gives his brothers the opportunity to repeat the same sins. Are you going to mistreat Benjamin and Simeon like you did me? Are you going to dishonor our father again? like you did with me. But they didn't. They loved their brothers, and they repeatedly honored their father with their words and with their actions. And even after all Joseph's brothers did to Joseph when he was young, Joseph says God was behind it. And then he forgives them all completely, even though they had treated him the way that they did. And then Joseph brings his family, and there's 70 of them at this point, his family into Egypt where they settle and can be under his protection. So what's the point of this plain sense? What's, what's the Bible telling us in the, in the plain sense of the text? Well, first, it shows God keeping his promise to make Abraham into a great nation. That's the point. God is keeping his promise to Abraham. Second, God is actually keeping his promise to bless the world through Abraham. You can see it in Genesis 41, verse 57. It says, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because a famine was severe over all the earth. So Joseph was not just rescuing his own family. He was blessing Egypt and all the earth. As God had promised, you would be a blessing. Third, it explains how Israel came into Egypt in the first place. So it sets up Exodus. Like, how do you know, how do they even get there? Well, this story explains the narrative of the Bible so you can understand why they're in Egypt and need to be delivered in Exodus. Fourth, the story of Joseph demonstrates what wisdom is like. This is a major theme in Joseph is that Joseph is wise. It shows all the kinds of qualities that you would expect and need in a wise ruler, which is the kind of king future Israelite kings ought to be. Wise rulers, hard work, truth-telling at all costs, refusing to murder, refusing to commit adultery, refusing to steal, providing for others, 
and above all, being committed to the one true God. These are all qualities that you would want in a king. Fifth, it shows how God preserves the line of promise through Abraham. So that's the plain sense of the story, and I tell it to you again to surface it in your mind. You know this story. But we need to think about it carefully before we see the types, because remember, types have to be rooted in the reality. So what's the point of the story? Is it just a good story? Should we just say, look, we should be wise like Joseph. Look how Joseph resisted temptation, so should we. Joseph forgave, so should we. That's jumping the gun. You're doing something, if you read the Bible that way, you're, you're reading it wrongly. That's not the first point. So what are the types? Let's consider the typological sense of the Joseph story. We've already seen Joseph's birth was supernatural. Well, Christ's birth was also supernatural. Christ was born into this world to keep the promise that God made after the fall, that the, the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Did you notice that Joseph is a shepherd? Joseph's a shepherd. Christ is a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Did you notice that Joseph was sent by his father to his brothers into the wilderness? Well, Jesus was sent by his father into the world. The wilderness is a symbol of the world all through the Bible, even under Revelation. Joseph's brothers hated him. Why? Because of who he was and what he said. Well, they hated Jesus because of who he was and what he said. John 7, 7 says, The world cannot hate you, Jesus says, but it hates me because I testify of it that his works are evil. Did you see that Joseph's brothers plotted to murder him? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees plotted to murder Christ. Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4 says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. They threw Joseph into a pit, a waterless pit. When Jesus died, he went to the dead. Matthew 12, 40, for just as Jonah was there three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Did you see how they sold Judah? Sorry. They, they sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Well, Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26, 15, Judas said to the high priest, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Joseph's blood was figuratively presented to his father. Well, Christ's blood is really presented to his father. Potiphar's wife tempted Joseph to sin while in Egypt. Think about that. It was in Egypt. Egypt is a symbol of the world. Jesus was tempted to sin while in the wilderness. Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Joseph was falsely accused of sin. Well, Christ was falsely accused of sin. They couldn't convict Jesus of anything, so they found false witnesses to testify against him. They, they, they dragged them up to lie about him. 
They threw Joseph in prison. Jesus was laid in the grave. Joseph was brought out of prison and exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And then this. Did you know that Pharaoh gave Joseph a new name above every name and commanded everyone to bow the knee to him? You can see it in Genesis 41, verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed them in garments of fine linen and put a chain about his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonah Paneah and gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. What does Philippians 2 say? Philippians 2 verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. How about this? Joseph provides physical bread for the world. Well, Jesus provides the bread of life for all who believe in him. John 6, verses 33 to 35 says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then Joseph taught his brothers about reconciliation and love. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And throughout this whole story, we see Joseph growing in wisdom. He faces each new challenge with more and more wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God, the Word of the Father, whom God possessed at the beginning of His works. And He grew according to His human nature and wisdom and stature before God and men. And then at the end of the story of Joseph, we find one last thing. And if you'll please turn with me to Genesis 50. Verse 17, here we find the record of when Joseph's father sent a message through his sons to Joseph, and here's what it says, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And then his sons say, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God your father. Look, what, look how Joseph responds. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Don't fear me. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph forgave the terrible sins of his brothers against him. Now, many would take this and they say, therefore, you should forgive. And that is true. And we'll get to that. But that's not the point, not the main point. Jesus forgives. What did we do to him? Our sins nailed him to the tree. Our murder, our betrayals, our unbelief. And Jesus said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. May I ask you, do you know your sins against Jesus? Ways you have sinned against him? You've broken his good commandments? You've sinned against brothers and sisters in Christ? With words and with deeds, you deserve death. What did Joseph's brothers deserve before the right-hand man of Pharaoh? What legally could he have done to them? He could have killed them. No one would have thought a thing about it, put them to death. But he cancels their debts. He forgives them. And the Lord Jesus Christ forgives all who come to him. Cancels your debt. Washes your sins away. And so there we see that Joseph is a type of Christ. He's a savior But a third thing we see is how this teaches us to live as the church. And there are many applications, but I want to make just one. This story teaches us to trust in Christ, to forgive us, and to forgive one another, and to love like he has forgiven and loved us. We see in this story that forgiveness is, is really not just the right thing to do. It is. We have to forgive because we've been forgiven. Christ commands forgiveness. But this story is also teaching us that forgiveness is wise. It's very foolish to hold grudges, to harbor anger and bitterness in our hearts. It's foolish. It's wise to forgive, to cancel debts. The best way to live in this world is to live a life of forgiveness. That's the best way to live. Forgiving those who sin against you. What does forgiveness mean? When we say forgive, what are we talking about? Well, it means you let go of your sinful anger. You repent of it. You go to the Lord Jesus who died for wretched sinners like you and like me. You remember his blood that washes you and you let go of your sinful anger. You don't turn the offense in your mind over and over again. It means you love your enemies who offend you, and you love your brothers who offend you, and you love and you forgive people who ought to love you, but don't love you like they should. You cancel their debts. 
Christ's teaching about forgiveness is one of the distinctive features of the, of the Bible, of the Christian faith. Forgiveness can be very hard because, because it violates our sense of justice, our personal sense of what we deserve. But what do we deserve, really, before God? We deserve death. And so if that person sins against me in a way that offends me and I want to get even with them and make, make them pay, I need to remember what I deserve before God. But then what he didn't give me because he took it on himself in the person of his son canceled my debt so I can forgive others. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean injustice or not doing the right thing. It means letting go of a personal debt. Mark eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who, who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So we have to forgive so that on the last day, we too will be forgiven. These are sobering words. Forgiveness is, is not an option. It is very hard to forgive when injustices have been committed against us, and yet it is absolutely required to forgive from the heart because we have been forgiven. Maybe someone who should have loved you betrayed you. Maybe they lied about you, or they murdered you, or they turned others against you, or they treated you like you were cheap like Joseph's brothers treated him like he was cheap, dishonored you or humiliated you. But as one bought with the blood of Jesus, you must not seek personal revenge or make them pay. Because that's not how Christ treats you. He forgives you. His blood washes you. He loves you and he teaches you to love others and he's patient with you while he teaches you. You say, but Brother Tom, I can't forgive right now. Well, no, none of us can forgive like we should. But we can start forgiving. We can fight to believe and forgive more and more under the grace of Jesus. And looking at Christ and his love, you can forgive. And you can love. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and that he is the one story of the Bible. Our Savior and our King who bought us with a price to reconcile us to God and who teaches us to love and to forgive through his love and forgiveness. In his name we pray, amen.